This is Artist Stories, featuring the stories of artists and arts organizations in our region. Artist Stories is a project of the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona, which is partially funded by the City of Tucson and Pima County. I'm Janice Sanchez, and today my colleague Woods Fairchild has a conversation with Joe O'Connell, artist, innovator, founder, and owner of Creative Machines in Tucson. Welcome, Joe. Thank you for joining us on Artist Stories today. So, Joe, you are the founder and owner of Creative Machines in Tucson. Can you share with us what what is Creative Machines and how long have you been operating in Tucson, both independently as an artist earlier in your career and also uh, as Creative Machines? So Creative Machines is my company. There's um, ranges between 25 and 30 people. We started in 1995 and then I moved to Tucson in 2001 and we've just grown slowly and organically about one person a year since the founding. So I started Creative Machines with a mission to create really cool interactive experiences and spaces that would bring people together. And so that wasn't to do interactive exhibits, which is what we started with, or necessarily to do art. But that's historically how it worked, is um, we had initially done a lot of interactive museum exhibits, and just the process of watching people in spaces using things I've made moved me closer and closer to art. So I moved to Tucson in 2001, then started hiring more people and that's how we grew to our current size and we currently have designers um, graphic artists engineers fabricators project managers a wide range of people working together on projects we still do museum exhibits um, audio kinetic sculptures we're getting into designing entire downtown art plans for entertainment districts and other special projects Amazing. And I understand correctly, I think, that some of your earliest uh, projects in your career personally, Joe, were um, were public art projects in Tucson. Is that right? Yes. Uh, TPAC, as it was known then, was really foundational in helping me get started as a public artist. Without a whole lot of prior credits, Tucson let me do one of the Luminarias del Pueblo, which is um, Desert O. That was my first public art piece. And I made that with leftover materials from museum exhibits and some of the first high brightness LEDs that came out. And then in a series of other commissions, TPAC allowed me to learn to make public art. And, you know, the commissions grew in size and... I really like how TPAC will hire an artist first and then work with them to come up with the concept because a lot of times I think in other municipalities you will have to propose a specific concept and sometimes the concept that wins in a very quick period is not the best over mm-hmm. time and so TPAC's I guess courage and leadership in letting the committee choose the artist and then work with them to develop the concept was very helpful to me as a starting public artist. Totally. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you as 
a firsthand public artist speak to the request for proposals versus the request for qualifications and that arts foundation as as you spoke to and have worked with them for with us for many years and formerly known as team pack the large majority of of our opportunities are requests for qualifications and it's interesting to hear you speak to having preference for that and and with all of your historical knowledge and experience with it can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing in a creative and maker household um, and how that set a foundation for your career as a public artist? I think a lot of all of our personal journeys are started by our family or community, whatever we, whatever was community to us growing up. And for me, that was my family. So my parents were teachers and artists Mm-hmm. And my mother did silk and ceramics. So my sisters and I growing up would, would do that. I still remember, you know, making things with my sisters. And then I'd go down in the basement and my dad and I had a little workshop there where we would make things. So I started out as a maker. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I understood the categories of art, invention, etc. Another big influence on my life is we grew up near... Thomas Edison's West Caldwell Laboratory. And my grandfather had played with Edison's youngest son, or not played with, I guess had been friends with, you know, because when he was an adult, and had motors and lab books and things um, passed on from Edison. And then we would visit the laboratory before it became the um, national monument that it is nowadays. It's It's been wonderfully restored and there's a great audio tour. But we would visit there. And so the idea of someone who could make things that other people would then enjoy and take into their lives was present early in my life. So I was always making things. Mm-hmm. And then the distinction between like the kitchen and the dining room was a big thing. Like we were all working together in the kitchen. And then <laughs> we would like bring the food out into the dining room and eat it. So the idea of behind the scenes and then what you shared with the world was um, was a big part of growing up. And I still think there's not a huge distinction between art and cooking, between all kinds of making and all kinds of sharing. So that was the environment in which I grew up. I'd say the other thing is um, my mother was a really strong force in the family and my father was a man who he spent his life teaching in inner city Newark. So he had to be pretty tough, but his definition of being a man was never to put down other people. And so it wasn't until my mid twenties, having grown up with two strong sisters, a strong mother and grandmother and a father who lived very peaceably with that, that I realized there were gender inequities, mostly historical in how we approach making and employment it just never occurred that to me that i would you know pay female employees less or ask them not to do physical things because that's just how i had grown up and as i hired people it just kind of worked out accidentally it was like every other person you know i hired um an old Norwegian woodworker who could, you know, make an entire house with like a plane and a hammer. And I hired a 17 year old um, young woman who loved to work on cars and was really good with metalworking. And I just didn't see the distinction. And that's kind of how the company grew was based on those early experiences with family. Hmm. I love hearing these I love hearing these these tidbits that you you speak about in in and in the the way that you approach and perceive your work and um, creativity 
and the the maker space through this lens of like really seeing this overlap between um, family and art making. Um, and I find that really fascinating. Is there anything else that you would share in terms of specifically in public art, this anything else that, to go deeper into this overlap between family and public art that you would want to speak to? Well, one of the early influences I had, so I started in my garage and then after the company grew a little bit and started getting jobs, I hired two people and I looked for a space to rent. So I just mm-hmm. by accident, the first space that I rented was owned by Thomas Edison's former shop foreman. And so Azel Prince, he was he was about 90 when I rented a space from him. He had been in his 20s when Edison was like in his late 80s. Wow. And then I was in my 20s when Azel was 90-ish. And so that's the only way that that overlap would have worked. But as I was starting the business, Azel would we set up a hammock in the shop and Azel would recline and tell stories. And he was rehearsing for a series of interviews he was doing with the National Archives about Edison's working methods because he was uniquely positioned. Um, Shop foreman slash secretary at the time meant that Edison would dictate to him who he wanted to work on, what experiments in a day. And then Azel would organize that and communicate that and then communicate back to Edison the results. So he had a firsthand view of how Edison managed a creative workforce. And so that was a big influence to me. Um, We kind of think of Edison, Edison was a little bit of a huckster and we always said that in my family, you know, we knew he hadn't really invented the filament. I think it was Latimer Clark who invented the filament working for Edison at the time. But Edison was really good at figuring out people's talents and putting them together Mm. into a 3d jigsaw puzzle Mm. so Mm. and and public art is the same thing so on our team we have um, architects engineers um, really skilled fabricators we have people who are really good at 2d people who are good at 3d it really is a team effort and i think my job is kind of to do what edison did and bridge the culture gaps between some of those fields because you need all of them together and in the same way that edison would would put together a machinist who wasn't really good theoretically with someone who was really good theoretically but then couldn't always make the jump to doing it in physical form someone who was good with marketing he would put those teams together Mm. and that's how he was able to you know bring those inventions to the world yeah And as owner of Creative Machines yourself, you're kind of in that position of of doing the the um, the magic of of putting different collaborators together at the same table. How do you how do you approach that in terms of um, being the facilitator for setting space um, and making connections between different makers? Um, in your in your studio space at Creative Machines um, to set up the space for people to be able to go into um, creative thinking. How do you how do you approach like facilitating creative space for your employees? Well, um, let's start with the physical space. We have a really rich environment filled with all sorts of materials, half finished forms, models. 
um, mock-ups of full-size ways of attaching things. Um, and a lot of things are labeled because you can't have total chaos. But I do believe in a rich environment so that as you're searching for ideas, you can just kind of look and you see something cool. So we have a rich environment. And Edison had this, you know, in West Caldwell, he had this library of materials where he said we have everything from an elephant's tusk, you know, to the glass eyeball of a U.S. senator, um, not to mention every alloy of metal, et cetera, in the middle. And so we have a pretty rich environment. When I see those pictures of, oh, I don't know, designer studios or architect studios, most of them are rich. And every once in a while, I see one with like pure white desks and just monitors without a fingerprint on them. And I'm like, they're not getting any work done. That was just staged. <laughs> so I think a, a rich physical environment is really helpful because at the end of the yeah. day, we're making things Absolutely. that we're communicating person to person through a physical object. And I think that's mm -hmm. what art is, is mm -hmm. making an object whose meaning lasts beyond the meaning that the creator gave it and mm -hmm. and can go to a complete stranger and communicate that meaning, whether it's a poem, whether it's a sculpture, a painting, whatever it is, a dance. Mm -hmm. um, it's a physical form that goes from one person to another. And then in terms of managing how people interact, we use whiteboards a lot. So the thing mm -hmm. about a whiteboard is, you know, if it's a piece of paper on a person's desk, and we're reviewing it, then I'm reaching over someone's shoulder with my red pen and I'm drawing on their drawing. And that's not, that doesn't feel quite right. But a whiteboard is communal property. So a lot of times we'll, we'll both be drawing all at the same time on a whiteboard or, you know, a group of us. And one of us will reach up and say, yeah, but let's do it this way. And they'll erase a part and draw a new part. And so shared drawing is helpful. And then in terms of how it works out over time, there's a certain art in recognizing the root of a good idea that may not be ready for evaluation just yet. So you have to protect some of those young little green shoots of good ideas. And so part of what I do is I help nurture ideas that may not be ready to see the light of day but then you mm -hmm. also have to prune away <laughs> mm -hmm. ideas that just aren't gonna work mm -hmm. so it's a it's like being a gardener or a farmer or something um, and that is yeah actually that's um, my parents had this huge garden growing up so we were always surrounded by growing plants throughout the year and when it was time to plant something and when it was time to pick them so I guess even though I'm not much of a gardener now myself I kind of grew up with that sense that when you have a good process, you are not, we are all so lucky to be alive on a planet that supports us and nurtures us with processes more complex than we currently understand. And when you're doing things in the right nurturing, but also pruning way, you are the recipient of all of that growing ideas. And so that's what I do. I sort of mm -hmm. um, fertilize the shoots and I snip the weeds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I find it really fascinating to, to talk with you about how you approach creative process and especially facilitating. I think the, the skill of being able to facilitate space in any kind of context, whether it's creative space or holding space in some other kind of capacity and context, facilitating and holding space, I think, is one of the most 
magical skills to be able to have. And from having personal experience visiting your studio space and uh, speaking with some of your employees who have, I think, attested to the the really positive work environment there, um, it's, it's really wonderful to hear you speak to it. In talking about collaboration and your your approach to collaboration yourself and to and to facilitating collaboration for those who you work with, can you speak to a little bit also how um, how how you've been inspired by those who you work with at Creative Machines as you're collaborating with other people interpersonally, you yourself? What does that mean to you? Um, uh, working with others and and uh, being inspired by others. Well, a lot of it comes back, I think, to listening. Um, so I consider everyone at Creative Machines a collaborator in one way or another. And then I've also collaborated with outside artists on several projects. And um, it's hard to say because a great art piece is solving a personal problem for a person. It's working on some problem, some need that society has. It's um, a little bit of a step into the unknown. And if you find someone else whose personal life trajectory interests or whatever sort of align with yours for that time, it's the most magical thing in the world. If you can finish mm -hmm. each other's sentences, one of you is drawing and the other finishes the line. I mean, that's probably the ideal form of collaboration. The other ways it can work can also be good um, if it's not perfect. You know, one of you can be coming up with ideas and the other can be editing them in a, in a good way, like saying, well, that probably won't work here, but what if we made it smaller and did three copies of it? You know, mm -hmm. a, a very productive way of editing where you're, you're not just cutting things off, you're just sort of moving the vines over to go up a different strand, if you will. So it helps to have somebody who is a good listener. And I think the only way to find good listeners in the world is to show that you're ready to listen. And um, that's been something I've, I've had to learn a little bit because sometimes I get excited and just keep talking. But the older I get, or the more mature I get as a collaborator and artist, the better I am able to be silent when it helps and then another person is talking and we're using different words, but maybe we're talking about the same thing. So I've I collaborated with um, an Emirati artist for a series of sculptures in Abu Dhabi. And it was really interesting. You know, we sat down together, very shy, not knowing, like going halfway around the world. But within a half an hour, we realized we saw the world in so many of the same ways. It was just great. It just worked out. So cool. When you meet somebody new, when you meet a new when you have the opportunity to work with a new collaborator, innovator, how do you feel that that impact on you as a as a creator? Well, ultimately, I think um, another person, if it's going to be a great collaboration, what they're doing is unlocking a part of you that has mm -hmm. sort of been dormant or some interest mm -hmm. in you. Mm -hmm. and awakening it and you're awakening a part of them and then together you're making something really cool that maybe each of you who might have your own practice or your own areas might um i don't know not have done by themselves but it, you're fanning mm -hmm. a tiny spark into a flame in each other you really it's not like maybe the 
I don't want to say the worst. One form of collaboration is one person does the two-dimensional part, a design on top of a three-dimensional structure that someone else builds. Well, that's one form of collaboration. But I really think the best is when each of you brings something out of the other that mm-hmm. was kind of dormant and hadn't been given enough air, enough oxygen to really breathe. So cool. So cool. When and, and how do ideas come to you? What do you do to prepare yourself? Well, um, (laughs) once I said, um, you know how there's, we talk about left brain, right brain. Once I said, well, the third half of my brain is my voice. Like people will ask me something and I'll just open my mouth and something will come out. So the process of talking with other people sometimes develops ideas. And I remember I do a lot of work with groups of kids. And I was meeting with a group of middle school kids once. And one kid said, well, I like making stuff too, but sometimes I don't know what to make. I run out of ideas. What do I do then? And I opened my mouth and I didn't know what I was going to say. But what I ended up saying was, well, making and inventing and creating is like breathing. And when you have breathed out the air in your lungs, you have to stop and breathe in. So part of what I do to stay creative is I spend a lot of time listening and observing. So you can observe nature. Um, there's a saying that a, a good artist observes other artists in the art market, um, but a great artist observes everything. And so I pick up a shell on the beach and I'm thinking about that. And a lot of times I'll be with my family or, you know, waiting online somewhere or at a bus stop chatting with people. And it might look like I'm not really doing my work Mm -hmm. because I don't have a sketch pad or a computer. But a lot of that is just observing just how the physical world and the human world are related. I'll be in a public. So as our son and a lot of his friends were growing up, I was often the one who would take them out to events. And I would say, okay, so these three kids come across this unknown object in a space. How are they interacting with it? I would just use my time to observe, oh, here's this couple on a date. Do they sit side by side? Do they sit across from each other at this art piece? Let's see what happens. So just observing is a big part of it. And I think a lot of life, sometimes things happen really fast in the world and you have to react. And we put a lot, think of the presidential debates or or don't if you don't want to, but um, think of, we do in our culture place a value on the ability of people to spontaneously react in an unprepared way with the right answer. And Mm. to some extent that's overrated, but to another extent (laughs) it exhibits the true character of a person. So a lot of times what I'll do is what I call preparing the brush, which goes back to Japanese art and how you would wave your hands in space, you'd do some Tai Chi, you'd do whatever it is so that when you picked up the brush with the flowing ink and move it across the page, it makes the perfect outline of the mountain range. And then the next brush stroke is the waterfall, let's just say. So I'll be lying on the couch, sipping a beer on the weekend, And, you know, I've been playing with the kids. I've been doing things. I'm just lying there. And my wife will say, I thought you said you had work to do. And I said, I do. I'm preparing the brush. She rolls her eyes and looks at me drinking the beer and says, oh, yeah. (laughs) But it really is. Because what I'm doing is is recounting to my mind what's important. um, Wearing down the pathways of thought that will then, when I have to think quickly, 
make the right choices. Absolutely. I love that concept of preparing the breast and, and it is, and it, it gets lost a lot in a lot of work environments, I think, of needing to constantly be producing content without going back to a restorative state that we and our bodies and ourselves uh, wholeheartedly are ultimately the 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 engines that that drive uh, whatever it is that we produce and whatever work it is that we're we're doing in this world um, and spending time to, to tend to the the mindset that you approach your work in is is so vital and I think the creative space is um, a really great testament to that. I want to ask a little bit about what kinds of things you are working on now and I was curious. So creative machines is working on. All, all the time, many, many projects and, and commissions um, at any given moment. Are you ever working on a project or an idea or a concept that is not tied to a specific project or location or opportunity uh, or maybe not yet? I am. I have a few, I have two areas where I'm doing some work. And this is part of a drive I've had in my life and company to become more active and less reactive. Um, mm -hmm. And I found, I think, maybe a few years ago that, you know, we were maybe too much reacting to what people asked us to do. And there's nothing wrong with that, because that is actually a form of collaboration. But I felt like I wasn't always able to do my best work unless I had spent some time coming up with ideas myself, free from, oh, you have to present this in two weeks and we need an itemized budget. So the two areas I've been working on, one of them started when I met with some kids in um, Lexington, Kentucky. And I sat down with these kids as part of community engagement and they said, so don't make us a pretty sculpture. We want you to make us a machine that will change the world. We're done <laughs> with pretty shiny color changing LEDs. We are just so done with what satisfied, um, you know, anyway, it just went on and on and on. And so for them, I came up with a concept that is a sculpture that carves new stone monuments about once per year monuments that reflect them, that are gender and race diverse, that express mm -hmm. ambiguity, that express anger at past humanity, but also the knowledge that old people mm -hmm. are dying and we're taking over the world. I don't know, exactly the opposite of the fake monuments right. that are now coming down. So I developed and prototyped mm -hmm. and budgeted um, a series of these outdoor they're sculptures themselves, and they use a mechanical means to carve a new sculpture with human power. Mm. So it's both a spectacle and an object, and it's a machine that creates a new object. And I call these, well, I call this machine, I Contain Multitudes, after Whitman's quote uh, from mm. Song of Myself. Um, limestone, the material it would be carving, is actually former microorganisms. And the idea is that every new every year it would make a new permanent stone monument for public spaces. So that's wow. one area. And wow. you know, I don't really have a commission to do that. Every arts commissioner I talk to says, oh, that's a wonderful idea. Um, but we basically want a perforated metal box with a light bulb inside it that says world peace or you know, whatever public whatever is think about the worst <laughs> prejudices of public art, or could you just make us two hands holding hands, you know, or whatever. Um, or a sign that says unity. And I'm like, yeah, 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 sure. What we can do that for you. But I really want to make this thing that's a combination object yeah. and spectacle and makes new objects. And sure. 
I'd be collaborating potentially with historically disadvantaged artists who maybe they work in a small medium. And so they would be sculpting the maquettes that form the things that this would be making every year. Anyway, there's a whole thing about that on my art website. The second area that I've been doing a lot of research and experimentation is a series of sculptures for what I call the fifth space. So if the first space is home, the second space is work, the third space is the plaza or the coffee shop or other public spaces, people say the fourth space is like Zoom calls and blogs and podcasts and virtual spaces. So the fifth space, as we urbanize, is spaces that are about an hour outside of urban centers where people go to revive themselves and reconnect with nature. It's not fully wild. And it's somewhat managed, but it's not the city park either. It's like halfway in between civilization and outside. Mm -hmm. So I've been developing a series of sculptures, a lunar stellar observatory, um, a human-made sound-making sculpture that uses um, Pythagorean tuning and um, just intonation and incredibly deep bass sounds that you probably couldn't make in your apartment or hear in your headphones to reconnect you with vibrations in the natural world. Um, there's a whole series of these sculpture experiences that I want to make for managed spaces outside of cities. Hmm. And again, there's no calls to artists for that, you know, but in the same way, there was no call for Richard Serra making big curved steel walls. There was no call to artists for graffiti artists when Keith Haring was doing that, Hmm. you know, everyone Hmm. I've talked to said, Oh, that's a great idea. I don't think that's art. And I'm like, yeah. And graffiti art wasn't art. And yeah, you know, minimalist art wasn't art until, you know, Mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Gosh, those, those concepts are, I'm, I'm excited to, to maybe stay tuned and, or hear how they, how they evolve. Is there any advice that you would give Joe to other artists, uh, artists who are starting out? Well, I think it would be presumptuous, um, <laughs> but I can only tell you the advice that was good to me at, at, as I was sort of sure. growing yeah. up. Listen before you speak. Um, well, I guess, I, I guess also um, when you're young and you don't have a lot of um, health issues or dependence, people who depend upon you, that's your time to take chances. And there's no... There's nothing better to take your chance on than yourself. So I would say take a chance on making what makes you happy and working out in your art the problems you need to work out with your psyche and your relationship to the world. It's a bigger chance. It's a bigger risk to stuff that inside you and not spend your time doing that because it's going to come out at some other time. you know. And that's why I felt when I was in my late teens and 20s, I spent you know, weeks and weeks on long solo bike trips. I went to four different universities. I was a seeker. And then I, and then I paired that with being a maker. And um, if I hadn't done it, if I hadn't spent a decade or so traveling and f- trying to figure out who I was and living, living a pretty hand-to-mouth existence, sleeping under bridges at times or whatever, and, and had the luxury to do that. And that's you know, partly because mm-hmm. I was a white male, partly mm-hmm. because I had a family that while I wasn't getting support from them, it, it was a safety net. And I really wish mm-hmm. we had a deeper safety net for everyone to be a bit more of a seeker. Mm-hmm. Um, but spend that time doing yeah. that. And, and if your circumstances constrain you, then 
get up a half an hour early every morning and make something and the rest of your day will be so much better. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Joe. Really appreciate uh, you joining us today on Artist Stories and the opportunity to chat with you more. Thank you, Woods, and thank you, Tucson, for giving me the opportunity to develop an art practice. This has been Artist Stories. To listen to more podcasts, visit kxci.org. Music for this podcast was created by Jonathan Rodriguez.